Yeah, thank you for tuning in. It's more than a podcast. Inexhaustible episodes, God's vast. Glorify Him as we broadcast the Lord's grace and God's wrath. More serious than a bomb blast. Full disclosure inside the title. No surprises, simply put, guys with Bibles. Yeah. Just some regular reborn reformed cats If it's in the Bible then they're gonna speak on that Cause the scripture is the final word okay. Competing ideas quite absurd Of this you can be quite assured <laughs> yeah. We were lost in the darkness of night immersed in sin But then the, the light, light emerged. emerged It was the Son of God, divine Christ that shines light The word in Genesis that assigned life in hindsight And was revealed through the prophets and apostles We magnify and expound on the power of the gospel Yeah, yeah So I think we're all aware of the pattern of the church, gathering and scattering. It's what we do every Lord's Day. Um, But what is it that we do when we gather? We're here to worship. Exactly. We live in week in, week out. We come together on the Lord's Day to worship. So that is a monumental and joyful duty that we've been called to, to worship the one true God. We're commanded in Scripture to not forsake meeting together, But what is that all about? Doesn't it count that wherever two or more are gathered in Jesus' name, there he is with them? Well, the church is called to worship together, and that means corporate worship. That's what we call corporate worship. Uh, And there are many debates over how to do it right. What are we supposed to do when we gather on the Lord's Day? What should we do? What should we not do when we gather? Some contend that we need a welcoming and provocative environment using skits or sermons based on movie plots, gold dust in the air conditioning units, decorations and lighting, or music meant to provoke uh, certain emotional responses, or to preach sermons based on quotes from football coaches, movie plots, tips on how to pack for vacation. Uh, These are things that, uh, well, or or say they make people greet each other in the middle of the service rather than before the service. Uh, as if you weren't already greeting people in the 15 minutes before the service actually started. So some of these churches fill huge platforms with what's akin to a movie set, or, say, have the pastor sitting on a gigantic couch, or ziplining to a glass pulpit from the high, high rafters. I'll just leave it there. Others refuse innovations like these and put spiritual content before presentation and carefully curate the elements of worship so that they are doctrinally rigorous, humble, clear, focused on God and his glory. They occupy humble meeting houses, and the figurative spotlight is on the word alone. Well, since I assume nobody here has been pelted by gold glitter this morning, I think it's probably safe to say that we're in the second camp rather than the first camp that I described there. Uh, So I say all this to say that there are two overarching approaches to worship, And so every congregation falls on one of those two sides. So there's no middle ground. So we're going to discuss what's called the regulative principle of worship, or sometimes I like to call it the notorious RPW. Uh, (laughs) You're welcome for that one. (laughs) The regulative principle is an approach to corporate worship that that seeks to only do the things in worship that are prescribed by Scripture. So this is in opposition to the normative principle of worship. Uh, That is the predominant view in evangelicalism today. And the normative principle contends that we can do anything in worship as long as it's not forbidden by Scripture. So you can see there's two different ways to, to address the Scripture there. Either we can only do the things that Scripture says, or we can do anything comes to us that we consider proper as long as it's not forbidden by scripture. So the normative principle uh, is not only kind of what we see in most evangelical churches now, but it's also the operating worship principle for the Roman Catholic Church, the various Orthodox churches, Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, not Latvian Orthodox, they don't exist, those are only on Seinfeld, Uh, and Lutherans. (laughs) They all subscribe to this view of worship uh, as well. 
So this, this doctrine ends up being made into kind of a Calvinistic distinctive or a, a confessional reform distinctive, but really I see it as a necessary outgrowth of sola scriptura in reformational doctrine as a whole. So before we get too far, I want to give uh, some definitions. So for the purposes of our discussion about the regulative principle of worship, we're talking about corporate worship, Lord's Day worship, not necessarily private worship. Um, so what is worship? Um, if anyone would be brave enough to want to give a description, you can, uh, but I've brought a definition, so you don't have to worry about it if you don't want to. You don't have to go on the record if, you don't, if you'd rather not. Well, I've brought a definition from Joel Beakey, who every time he utters a paragraph, it gets published somehow. He's just brilliant, uh, very steeped in the Puritans. So this definition of worship that he provides is very Puritan, um, and I really, really like it. Um, and I would even say this applies to private worship, but it certainly applies to corporate worship. Ready? <laughs> to worship God is to bow down before his majestic glory and in spirit and in truth to bring him in and through Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures, the honor and praise that belong exclusively to him. I'll read it again. To worship God is to bow down before his majestic glory and in spirit and in truth to bring him in and through Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures, the honor and praise that belong exclusively to him. I think this is a really good definition, not just because Joel Beakey wrote it, that helps, but it gets to the heart of what we're concerned with, and that's the quest to ascribe to God the honor and praise that only belongs to him. If we're going to do that, knowing that we possess the authoritative written word that he inspired, it makes sense that we would search the word to learn how God wants to be praised. One way to boil the quote down into something more bite-sized would be to say that worship is a cycle of revelation and response. And we can kind of see that in that quote. Revelation is to bow down before his majestic glory. We have to see, we have to be confronted with the glory of God from special revelation in order to bow down. And then in response, we bring him the honor and praise that's due to him alone. So we'll get into this a little bit later, but it's important to have that in mind as we look into the subject. The worship experience is both passive and active, so we must hear the truth and we must agree and express our joy. The truth must be clearly expressed both to our minds and to our hearts, and we must respond in kind. So what kind of worship does God find acceptable? Worship that prostrates ourselves before God, declares he's worthy, and honors him. So the simplest way to describe this would be in John 4, 19 through 24. So let's go ahead and turn there. This will be kind of the thesis statement for our discussion this week and then also next week, Lord willing. That's John 4, 19 through 24. So as you're turning there, uh, this is from the story of the woman at the well. Uh, Jesus is having the, the long discussion with her. Um, tells her about her life and amazes her that way. Um, but then we get to, she kind of starts to change the subject a little bit once things get kind of personal, and she starts talking about worship here and where it's proper. So John four nineteen through 24. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I would say to, to worship in spirit and truth means that true worshipers worship deeply, personally, in their spirit, according to special revelation, not their own ideas, not their own opinions of who God is and what his revelation is. And uh, we have to remember, in the context of this passage, the Samaritans fell short of that because while they sacrificed the truth, uh, they abandoned the divinely appointed types and shadows that were to, to point toward Christ um, that were delivered through Moses. So Jesus is cutting through all that Old Testament thinking 
um, showing her the error of her ways. They even chose a different mountain uh, other than Mount Zion to worship on. Uh, and, and he cuts through all the religious trappings of his day, which would be destroyed quite literally in the destruction of the temple, uh, and coming to the fact that worship will not be on one particular mountain. There will come a day when you don't have to debate whether worship is proper on this mountain here or this mountain here or that mountain there, but there will be people across the world, even in places where there are no mountains, who will worship God properly. Um, so that is in spirit and in truth. So New Covenant worship treasures Christ as the center by putting his word at the center. So New Testament worship is worship that magnifies Christ, who is the high priest and the sacrifice at the same time. It's worship that doesn't attempt to replace Jesus in any of those offices. So that leads us to a question that brings us to another important definition. Why the emphasis on corporate worship? So we have to distinguish between private worship and corporate worship. So these are, two, these are actually two different things. And so even though there are some theologians who have tried to conflate the two, um, each has its own purpose, occasion, and standards. The regulative principle is only concerned with public worship on the Lord's Day at a time when the congregation sets aside for corporate worship as the ecclesia, the called out ones, because Yahweh has always set the standards for when his people gather to honor him. And we're going to get to some of those texts in, in a little bit. A key text that describes the peculiarity of corporate worship is Matthew 18, 19, and 20. So we can flip there real quick. And then very soon we'll be diving into the Old Testament. Because what I'm hoping to do today is to take a broad sweep from Old Testament into New Testament to lay the foundation for the regulative principle. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday is when we'll start talking about the actual distinctives of regulative worship that we engage in here at Logansville. So Matthew 18, 19, and 20 Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So I think we're all pretty well aware of this text. We've heard a lot of people use this text before to make various arguments, and usually they're not very good arguments. Um, but the context of this passage has to do with the business of the church, so it seems impossible to divorce these verses from that idea of the business of the church, especially that of church discipline, which is what the text immediately before this is talking about. So at the end of the passage, we get this phrase that many have tended to misuse, where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is not some informal group having a Bible study over their shared lunch break at work, uh, that would be more like redeeming the time or even Bible study in the name of your employer, <laughs> if you think about it that way. You're at, in, you're at work incidentally, so we're just going to redeem the time with some prayer together as co-workers. This is a very specific thing. This has to do with the, with the phrase, in my name. That is a time specifically set aside for Christ and for his worship because that's the main objective of even getting together and having that gathering. There's an interesting historical note here uh, that in the day, the ruling council of various cities or, or states uh, in the first century were also called ecclesias. Um, that's not a specifically Christian word. So the ecclesia of Sparta would gather, they would be convened at a certain time, and that was when they would discuss the business of the state. So they exercised their duties only when they were called together. This is also kind of similar to the Jewish concept of a minion, M-I-N-Y-A-N, not the little yellow guys from the movie. <laughs> that's a quorum of usually 10 men, and that's required to even have a synagogue service or other uh, religious services, other religious gatherings. So using this context, the idea of formal corporate worship is identified pretty clearly in this passage. So these actions and promises are laid out by Christ here, specifically about the worship of the gathered body of believers, corporately, we would add. 
Uh, and Paul also emphasizes this same fact in 1 Corinthians 5.4, which incidentally is also about church discipline. We don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But he restates the special presence of Christ when the church is gathered for worship. So, okay, why regulative and not normative? So at bottom, I, I believe the regulative principle is the best approach to corporate worship because Jesus is king, not us. He's the sovereign Lord who paid the price for our sins with his blood, who rose again for our justification, and he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and especially in calling his church to the worship that he intends. So in this scenario, the church only has a declarative authority, not a decretive one. So we can only announce the truth, exegete it, explain it. In fact, that is our duty as the ecclesia, is to proclaim the truth. But we have no authority as the church to pronounce what may or may not be done in Christ's church. This, of course, is a central issue at the heart of the Reformation. Uh, the five solas, sola scriptura, sola fide, solus Christus, sola gratia, and of course, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone, all have effects on the worship of the church. Uh, bear with me a moment. I want to lay out just a quick scenario um, as to how the Reformation corrected worship. Uh, and this, of course, is another example from my friend Joel Beakey. Uh, we're going to time travel for a second here. You could enter a cathedral in 1415 and see a bishop about to celebrate the Mass. There would be a highly decorated altar, ornate vestments, and a chancel set apart by a screen so people can't draw near. They physically can't come close. Um, he will seek the intercession of Mary, the saints, and the angels, having already been authorized by the Roman church to apply Christ's saving power through the church's seven sacraments. He'll perform the ceremonial degeneration of the Lord's Supper at the center of the Mass. So the bishop will say prescribed prayers, he will bow, he'll kiss the altar, he'll sprinkle holy water, and he'll make the sign of the cross. At the high point of this spectacle, the bread and wine will be changed in essence. And those watching can see the scare quotes that I'm holding up. Changed in essence. He will offer them up to God as the very body and blood of Christ. Though a lot of scripture will be quoted in the course of events, nobody can understand it because it's all in Latin and no one but the clergy can speak Latin. The Mass is, to quote, Joel Beakey again, a feast for the senses and a famine for the soul. So then let's fast forward to 1643, long after the changes of the Reformation have spread across Europe. The Puritans in England began to insist on more scriptural worship in the Anglican church and fled persecution to the New World. Worshippers enter a very plain building in New England with no visible images. There is no altar, only a high pulpit for the preacher and a table for the Lord's Supper. The pastor opens with a 15-minute prayer, reads a portion from the King James Version of the Bible, and gives a brief exposition. The congregation sings metrical psalms, a cappella from the Bay Psalm Book, the very first book printed in the USA in 1640. Then the pastor prays briefly for help from the Holy Spirit, then preaches a doctrinal, experiential, biblical, and practical sermon for about an hour. People take notes, then afterwards he prays again on behalf of the congregation, the church, families, worldwide ministry, 30 to 45 minute prayer, exalting God, and then they sing more psalms. Then they take the supper with simplicity and they aim at spiritual uh, communion with Christ. And then, uh, of course, more singing. And then they conclude with a benediction. It's about two hours, two hours and 15 minutes. About uh, 30 to 45 minutes. Yeah, yeah. If we were real Puritans, we'd be having our heads bowed a long time. <laughs> but we will do something very Puritan later today because the church then would always eat together after service, and then there would be another similar length service in the afternoon. So that is a night and day difference in approach to worship. Uh, one is just absolutely bloated with man's inventions and ideas in worship, and the other is carefully attentive to the commands of Scripture and a dedication to a biblical order of worship. So the principle that underlies this change is the subject of this very study that we're going to be undertaking for the next couple weeks. Uh, I have a couple other questions uh, I want to answer at the outset, and then we'll dive into some, some scripture.
Uh, when is corporate worship observed? The day that the church has set aside for corporate worship was Sunday, the first day of the week, as the Lord's Day. There's a basis for that, and I'm just going to give you these references. We don't have to turn there. Revelation 1.10, Acts 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. Um, 1 and 2, I should say. It's not much to go through there between those two verses. Uh, those all make reference to either the Lord's Day or the first day of the week as a day to gather for worship. Uh, in the 1689 London Baptist Confession, succinctly states that from the beginning of creation until resurrection, the Sabbath day was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection forward, it was changed to the first day of the week. So that is to be continued until the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. So it's God's prerogative to appoint times and seasons, and I think we have sufficient biblical support to say that the Lord's Day, Sunday, is the day for corporate worship. Where is corporate worship held? Because of the work of Christ and the truth recovered in the Reformation, we no longer must hold to a particular place as inherently holy ground. There is no physical temple. The risen Christ is our high priest, and the church is his temple. John Knox actually once said about this idea that the kirk goes in. So that's the Scottish word for church. The church goes into the building. The building is not the church. Um, so when believers, believers entering the church on the Lord's day, it becomes church because the church is in the building. Um, so we didn't violate God's commanded order when we had worship out in the yard this summer uh, due to the pandemic. The church still gathered. We didn't have to have these walls in order to worship. Um, Christ's promised presence among the blood-bought saints when they gather is what makes the difference. And this is also covered in the 1689, chapter 22, paragraph 6, where it says, Under the gospel, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is tied to or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or toward which it is directed. So we don't have to pray in the direction of Jerusalem as the Jews do. We don't have to pray toward Mecca. Um, Christ is with us. You know, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. There is no special holy place that we have to pray toward. And that kind of gets to the heart of the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well, because she was very concerned with the place of worship. Um, and I'm sure to her it was a very radical thing to say that you aren't going to have to direct your worship at this mountain or that mountain or, or wherever direction. Um, the Spirit will indwell his church. Now, who's corporate worship directed to? So if we're to worship rightly, as in worship, the way that Yahweh ordains, then we have to know who Yahweh is. And after all, this goes back to the cycle of revelation and response. So let's get into the revelation. Uh, the primary revelation is of who Yahweh is. And I think a really clear place would be Exodus 3. Exodus 3, we'll, we can actually start in verse, I'm gonna, we'll start with verse 5, but then we'll skip down. Um, actually, no, we'll just read the whole passage, why not? Uh, Exodus 3, 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said to him, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So this text really is inescapable on any theological topic, but I think especially on the topic of worship. I know the Garden, the Garden of Eden is the kind of the center for worship at the start of creation, but we do only have so much time, so we're going to start here. <laughs> uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The great I am is all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-joyous, and eternal. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands and is not served as if he needed anything, as it says in Acts. He has no needs. He has no desires that he's incapable of accomplishing or serving. He has no ills that need remedied. He's the source of all those things for his people. When he instituted the types and shadows that were communicated through the Old Testament sacrificial system, he wasn't setting himself up a breakfast, lunch, and dinner service. He was setting his people up for generations of faithful worship, looking to him alone for their needs and giving him the praise that belongs to him alone. Yahweh says in Psalm 50.10 that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need food or gifts. The worship of the old covenant Israel was not fulfilling any lack in God. Rather, it was setting them up to see the necessity of blood for atonement, that man cannot accomplish his own forgiveness, and that he is very small, very needy, and Yahweh is all-sufficient for his every need, not vice versa. So let's not forget as well that Yahweh tells Moses plainly in verse 12 why he's sending him to set Israel free from slavery, to serve him on, his, on this mountain. Uh, they're not being freed to merely be free to go about their lives and do as they wish. They're being set free to worship. So before we go any deeper into Exodus, we should also remind ourselves of a special revelation that Yahweh gives Moses uh, telling him his name. This has ramifications. Uh, but we also need to remind ourselves also in uh, verse 5, where he says, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. We should remember that meeting with Yahweh is no small matter. Uh, Sam Waldron has said on this text that if God is specially present somewhere, as we talked about in Matthew a couple minutes earlier, then special conduct must be required before him. So before Mo Moses can come near to this theophany that he's seen in the desert, he must remove his sandals and this is coming from Sam Waldron, he must remove human invention in this moment of communion, instruction, and edification straight from the lips of his creator. Uh, actually, as a side note, uh, Joshua was also told to remove his sandals when he saw the commander of Yahweh's army. That's in Joshua 5.15. And that, the commander, which this is a Christophany, this is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, did gladly receive worship. So when, you know, remember when angels appeared to people, they would not accept the worship if people tried to bow down before them. They would say, worship God alone. The commander in Joshua 5.15 accepted Joshua's worship. All right, we're going to stay in Exodus, but we're going to travel to Mount Sinai because I don't think we can escape Mount Sinai in talking about worship. So we're going to go to Exodus 20, and we're going to talk about the first two commandments. So we'll go Exodus 20, verses 1 and through, uh, through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So again, God's reminding the people of who he is, his name, what he's done for them. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So because Yahweh is the one true God, all sovereign and all powerful, he alone has the right to claim the worship of his people. The people under his covenant must worship him alone, and he has the right to make that commandment of his covenant people. Uh, the second commandment is like the first. Uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image uh, of anything on earth or uh, in the waters uh, anywhere. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. So in discussing Yahweh's regulations for worship, we have to begin here. The second commandment gives a detailed and strict prohibition on the use of images for worship. Yahweh is spirit, and he cannot be seen. His worship should not be clogged up with imagery because you cannot reduce the eternal, sovereign God to a single image or even a series of images. He's above that. And you cannot ascribe his name to an image that is of some part of his creation. So this is why the commandment mentions anything that's either in heaven or the earth or the waters. Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 19, and I'll just read this briefly for you, but you can write that down if you want the, the reference. Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 19 expands on this commandment, I think, in a really helpful way. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven." The problem with making images or even other human inventions central to your worship is that you might just find yourself seeking and valuing those symbols rather than the creator. That's the heart of idolatry. And you don't have to have a carving to be idolatrous. Simply saying, I think God is like this, and I prefer to think of him this way, is every bit as idolatrous as bowing before a statue. You've made your own God and you've ascribed to it the worship that the one true God alone deserves. The first two commandments tell us that there are two ways to commit idolatry. To worship something other than the one true God, which would be a violation of the first commandment, and worshiping the one true God in the wrong way. That's a violation of the second commandment. Uh, again, the 1689 states in chapter 22, that's the worship chapter, in paragraph 1, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and does good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So this text that we just talked about prohibits the imagination and devices, as the 1689 says, of men from being used as the means of worshiping God. So it goes beyond the use of images, uh, but any of the even well-intentioned creativity of mankind for corporate worship. Um, so let's recall those excesses of the Roman Catholic Church that we spoke about before, or even the Christian Orthodox churches. They are loaded with images that they use in worship. The crucifix that I named earlier is just one part, but the Orthodox are marked by their use of icons, what they call icons, which is a particular art style uh, that's used to portray biblical characters, including Christ, saints, and martyrs, especially for use in worship. There are even some prayer practices that involve standing before your icons to pray. 
Um, and they decorate their churches in images. Uh, so if you have seen pictures or have been in an Orthodox sanctuary, they're literally wallpapered in images, even into the, the, the domed ceilings. And it's very grand, it's very beautiful, but it's not done in accordance with Yahweh's commandment that we see here. Instead, the lack of images is a minor hallmark of Reformational churches, especially in the Genevan tradition, which I would argue that a Reformed Baptist like myself is closest to being part of. Many times, Calvinists have actually been called iconoclasts, which means breakers of icons or images, because of the seemingly radical devotion to ridding the church of a reliance on images for worship. So that's not an end in and of itself, but it's just the removal of images or other devices in worship is an attempt to cling more closely to the prescriptions of, of the Bible. That doesn't mean the sanctuary can't be beautiful. There are extensive rules about colors and decorations in the tabernacle and the temple that Yahweh would give to Moses in Scripture, but none are to be used to spur or inspire worship. Okay, so let's go to a couple examples of when Yahweh's rules for worship uh, were violated. So it could not get more obvious than the golden calf, uh, which I uh, am calling a one-two punch of idolatry. So let's turn to Exodus 32, not too far away, uh, verses 1 through 6. So Moses has been up on the mountain receiving all sorts of instructions from Yahweh, um, including architectural designs, uh, clothing designs, recipes, all sorts of commandments. And all the while, his brother Aaron, the, the high priest, is uh, up to some, some bad business at the foot of the mountain. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he made an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So not only did Aaron charge the people of Israel to give the gold plunder to him, which is what they took from the Egyptians, remember, on their way out of town, um, he used that gold plunder for this idolatrous effort when it should have been used for the designs that Yahweh was giving to Moses at that very time up on the mountain, unbeknownst to them uh, down at the foot of the mountain. But he used it to do what the heart of man is always driven to do, create idols and worship them. That's what John Calvin said the heart of man is, a perpetual factory for idols. Now, I'm going to quibble with the ESV a little bit. I like the way that the NASB renders Aaron's statement a little bit better. So here it says, um, gods, these are your gods. Well, that comes from the Hebrew word Elohim, which is a plural word, but that is a given name, a moniker given to Yahweh. So, Essentially, Aaron is saying, this is your God. He's ascribing a title of Yahweh to this idol. Leviticus 19.4 makes this explicit. Do not turn to idols or make yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Uh, again, to the 1689, chapter 22, paragraph 2. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures. And since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. So this one-two punch comes from the fact that not only did Aaron make a cast metal idol, okay, that's, uh, that's commandment one, uh, but he gave the name of God to it. So he, he failed epically in his job as a priest, as the shadow of the mediator that would come, that is Christ, he utterly failed. He broke both of those commandments. All right, let's, go, let's turn to Leviticus now. Leviticus 10, and we're going to talk about a dynamic duo of idolatry. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 
Leviticus 10. We're just going to look at verses 1 and 2. This is uh, the death of of Nadab and Abihu. Say that 10 times fast. Okay, so we're going to see how even Aaron's sons failed epically in their job as worship leaders. Uh, Verses 1 and 2. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. This goes back to part of that instruction that Moses was given on Mount Sinai. Like, remember I just said that Moses was given some recipes? Well, this is one of, one of the things that he received a recipe for, was the incense that was to be used in the tabernacle at a particular time and in a particular way. So according to Exodus 30, we don't have to turn there, Aaron is supposed to burn this special incense set aside for the worship of Yahweh alone. He's supposed to burn it when he cares for the lamps. And the incense itself, like I said, has a recipe. It was set apart as holy. But all we know here is that it's called unauthorized fire. So we don't know if they changed the recipe. We don't know if they did it at the improper time. Did they do both? We don't really know. But they violated this commandment in some way so that the burning of incense that they undertook was unauthorized. So regardless, they disobeyed this positive ceremonial law and they received due punishment. Those who offer unauthorized fire before Yahweh, who is a consuming fire, are consumed by his fire. Rather than worshiping before his face according to his word, they died before his face. All right, let's go to 1 Samuel next, and we're going to look at Saul's unworthy worship. 1 Samuel 15. This will just be another couple verses. 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. Saul has justified the order from Yahweh to utterly destroy the Amalekites, who were a brutal enemy of Israel. Yahweh told him to devote everything to destruction, man, woman, child, infant, ox, and sheep, camel, and donkey. So instead of obeying that command, Saul spared their king and also kept the fattest and healthiest livestock. So let's go to 15, 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. Uh, this, is the, um, this is the word that Samuel gave him. Has has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is the iniquity, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So Samuel has actually caught him uh, faking piety before him, uh, talking about the loud noises of livestock around them. That's in the context previous to this. Saul openly admits that those very livestock were brought from the Amalekites, and he spared them to sacrifice to Yahweh. So instead of following the commandment to destroy all of it, he decided he would save the fattest of the livestock to sacrifice. So Samuel accused him here of kind of jumping on the spoil uh, and delivered that message to him. It's important here, what's important for us, I think, to remember is this phrase, to obey is better than sacrifice. Yahweh has never delighted in mere outward forms of worship, whether animal sacrifice in the Old Testament or the self-righteous prayers that the Pharisees shout in the middle of the marketplace. Psalm 40, verse 6 says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. The acts of worship in and of themselves do not please Yahweh. Heartfelt worship, I would say worship in spirit, true response to his revelation that magnifies his name is the heart of worship. Doing this according to the word is the heart of the regulative principle of worship. Uh, another example, we're going to go to Second Samuel chapter 6. We're going to talk about Uzzah. Now, this, I think this is an interesting passage. Uh, and there are, there are some people 
who have used this text to criticize God as being harsh or um, unreasonable, I've heard some people say. We're just going to go to one verse, so 2 Samuel 6, 3. Um, the people of Israel are reclaiming the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 3. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the Ark of God, and Ahio went before the cart. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of this error, because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Okay, some people have said that that's harsh. Uh, but Numbers, if we, if we think about Numbers 4, verses 14 and 15, that is where the design of the Ark of the Covenant is, is told. And it was supposed to be moved by the Levites on poles with rings fashioned on the side of it. Rather than doing this, they were transporting it on a cart, which is a violation of that commandment. So when it began to slip, Uzzah thought it best to try and catch it to keep it from falling on the ground. I think maybe we'd all be tempted to do that if we were in that situation. We wouldn't want the holy things of God to be, to be dirtied up by hitting the ground. And I think it was R.C. Sproul who said this, but I could be wrong. Um, but he's a good person to attribute stuff to. I believe it was R.C. Sproul. Uh, who said that Uzzah would have done well to remember that man's hands are dirtier than the dirt of the ground, because at least the dirt has never committed cosmic treason against the Holy One of Israel, as man is guilty of. So really, in that situation, it would have been better for the ark to have hit the ground, because man's sinful hands have no reason to touch that holy, um, that holy ark. So this is just to say that there's nothing arbitrary. The Holy One of Israel commanded that the ark be commanded on, to be carried on the poles. He commanded that, and that it should have been done. The devices of men, whether in case it's a, a simple ox cart um, or something else, was not suitable for transporting the symbol of Yahweh's presence. He had ordered that it be, commanded, that it be carried on the poles, and they didn't do it. All right, uh, the last Old Testament passage we're going to look at is all the way in Jeremiah. I'm going to do a lot of turning here. Uh, Jeremiah 19, verses 4 and 5. Now, Jeremiah, even, even in the first chapter of Jeremiah, worship is a huge... Um, a huge theme in the utterances of Yahweh to Jeremiah the prophet. The people of Israel had violated, once again, the commanded order of worship for Israel, and so God was now going to send a prophet to rebuke them and encourage them and exhort them to abandon their idolatry and return to Yahweh. All right, so verses... 4 and 5 of chapter 19. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings to, uh, in it to other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. I know we're kind of in the middle of an utterance here, but for the sake of time, we're just going to focus on this part. Yahweh is decreeing calamity on the land of Israel because of these, what I would call, worship innovations in the temple. These wicked kings and people had brought various local idols, and it was very in vogue in the day to have regional gods who commanded certain parts of the weather or crops or fertility or things like that. They brought those things into the temple, and they were worshipped beside Yahweh. 
and perhaps most grievous was this, the blood of the innocents, um, which we see done uh, in the worship of Molech in the Bible, where people sacrifice their own children to an idol for the expiation of their sins. He gives the same proclamation in Jeremiah 32, 35, and again, that was specifically targeting the Molech cult. So this is all grounded in Yahweh's regulation. The people have added these things that were not in his commandments, nor would they have been because they violate his nature. And that's why he says, these things did not enter my mind. These things are not according to the nature of God. Worship, proper worship, is for Yahweh alone. So this abomination was not only murder, but if that was not bad enough, but it was also idolatry of the highest degree. All right, new covenant distinctives, and then we'll be, we'll be done for today. So we've seen that Yahweh alone has the authority to make the rules for worship, and we are obliged to follow them joyfully. We've seen how this has been done poorly in the Old Testament when grace had been mediated through types and shadows. So now, actually, is it officially 1030? All right. We'll save this for next week, but we're going to see how these commandments from the Old Testament, which hold the commandments of God high uh, and require that we follow what, what Yahweh says, um, those same commandments are empowered uh, by the indwelling Holy Spirit under the new covenant. Uh, and so we will see some distinctives next week of how the regulative principle applies to the New Testament worship that we are actually very soon about to engage in. Um, this is a very, very deep topic, and I hope that this at least has been helpful to lay the groundwork from the Old Testament that Yahweh is God, He is King, we are not, and we worship Him according to what He has instructed us to do in our worship. So, any questions or comments on this part of, of uh, the foundations of the regulative principle? All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have. Um, we have your word. We have a copy of your word in our hands today. We can clearly see not only what you've commanded for worship, but we see crystal clear in the pages of Scripture your holy and righteous and yet gracious nature. Um, the worship that we engage in when we gather here together is such a privilege, and uh, we truly take it seriously at Logansville, and I'm very, I'm grateful for that. I thank you for the work of the Spirit in the hearts of those of us here. I pray that today, as we worship here very quickly, that you will revive our hearts, that you would encourage us uh, as the gospel is preached, as we read your word, and we sing, and we pray, that your name will be magnified, that our spirits, our hearts, will be emboldened to share the gospel as we scatter from here today. And go to our own place this week. Glory to you alone, Father. Glory to Christ for the work that he's done in us. Glory to the Holy Spirit for the ongoing help that we receive. Amen.